Today's episode of the Planet Microcap podcast is brought to you by Weinberg & Company, a CPA firm serving the audit and compliance needs of micro and small cap companies. Their technical excellence is validated by a long and stellar PCAOB record. Clients benefit from reasonable fees, reflecting their belief that your capital is best deployed for growth, not for runaway accounting costs. Weinberg & Company, an audited legacy of quality. To learn more, call Corey Fisher at 310-601-2200. That's 310-601-2200. Or visit www.weinbergla.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome back to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 143. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Now I'm bringing you this episode from LA, uh, not only in honor of the Lakers winning the NBA championship, but uh, also in honor of our sponsor for this episode this week, Weinberg LA. Thank you to Corey Fisher and the entire team at Weinberg. Uh, you can go and find out more information about them at WeinbergLA.com. We are less than a month away from our next virtual conference, the SNN Network Australia virtual event. Be sure to join us there. Uh, we have speakers, our sponsors are live on the website, and please make sure to register to participate. Uh, the event is November 9th and 10th, 2020 U.S. Pacific time and 10th and 11th Australian East Coast time. So for more information, please visit australia.snn.network and click register now if you'd like to participate. I look forward to seeing you all there. I'm pumped on the shows that we have for you this week from the SNN Podcast Network. Uh, first up on Avoiding the Crowd with Maj Sway Dunn, we welcomed fellow podcasting extraordinaire on the show, Brandon Balow, the host of the Value Hive podcast. Uh, Brandon put out a great tweet the other day on how to avoid value traps, and we break down this graphic thoroughly. So you do not you do not want to miss this episode. Check it out on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at avoidingthecrowd.podbean.com. And on In the Market Trenches with Gary Reby and Eric Fure, we also welcome a really awesome guest, Thomas Brazil. He is the founder and CIO of 507 Capital and has extensive distressed investing experience, having founded and run a distressed investing fund for seven years prior to founding 
507 capital. As you can imagine, he's got plenty of war stories. It's a very entertaining show, and I highly recommend listening in. Thomas, he actually really hasn't been on too many podcasts before, and he has a very unique and insightful investing approach and process. And again, if you're listening to this and you'd like to share your war story on In the Market Trenches, shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com or shoot me a DM on Twitter at Bobby K. Craft, B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. Love to hear all your stories out there and share those lessons that you learned. Uh, you can hear this new episode on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. And the Investors Roundtable is back again this week. Tune in every Friday morning to watch the latest episode of the Investors Roundtable. This week, we're talking SPACs. In particular, what the hell's going on here? So who will be joining me to discuss this topic? You're going to have to tune in this Friday to find out. Subscribe to the SNN Network YouTube channel to be notified of each new episode. That's www.youtube.com slash SNNWire. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Lauren Templeton. She is the founder and principal of Templeton and Phillips Capital Management, LLC. Uh, Lauren is also the co-author of Investing the Templeton Way, the market-beating strategies of value investing's legendary bargain hunter. She joined me on the Planet Microcap podcast virtual edition with Perth Toll and Maya Peterson, and it was long overdue to have her back on the show. Uh, if you had to build an investor in a lab with the desired intellect, knowledge base, capability, behavioral intelligence, and pedigree, I think Lauren Templeton would be the result of that. Uh, she has a wealth of experience from the many lessons that she learned from her father starting at a young age to her days working with her great uncle, Sir John Templeton. And in this episode, we cover it all. Listen and learn to the Templeton way, the art of contrarian investing. I promise you will enjoy our chat. Thank you again for tuning into episode 143 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And please enjoy my interview with Lauren Templeton. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and joining me today is a very special guest. Uh, she was actually on our virtual podcast panel that we did back in August with Maya Peterson and Perth Toll, and it was it's it was way overdue to have her on to do her own individual show and interview. So with that, I'd like to welcome Lauren Templeton. She is the founder and president of Templeton and Phillips Capital Management. Lauren, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Doing well. Ah, very good to hear. So uh, we we actually went through a few of the questions that I'm going to be asking you today on that on that panel. But you know, today we're going to be able to flesh it out a little bit more with more follow ups and hopefully not too much annoyingness for me. But you know, we'll 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 do our best. Um, so I'd love to start off with your background and and when and where did your passion for investing begin? Sure. So um, I grew up in a pretty famous investing family. So my great uncle was Sir John Templeton. And, you know, his career was really hitting its stride in the 80s. And I was born in 1976. So the bulk of my childhood was spent in the 80s. Um, my parents were local business owners in a very small town in Tennessee. 
and they were very passionate about investing. They decided that although their businesses were successful and they ultimately sold the businesses and did well, they knew how hard it was to make money and they decided to get as much money out of the businesses as possible and invest it in the market. And that coincided with Uncle John's, you know, career really taking off. He was on Wall Street Week frequently in the 80s. And I spent, you know, my evenings watching Wall Street Week with my father. Wall so, Street Week, um, that's a deep cut right there. Yes, yes, with Louis Rukeyser. And I still <laughs> go back and watch some of those episodes. They're amazing, right? They all sit around in tuxedos and it will be like Peter Lynch and Sir John Templeton and Louis Rukeyser. And um, God, I love it. Um, but that's how I grew up. And um, my dad heavily influenced me when it came to investing. He allowed me to pick um, a stock per month. I could buy any stock in the world I wanted. And he would buy me one share and go down to the local Walmart and buy a picture frame that was pre-matted and he would hang the stock certificates on the walls in my room. So I grew up um, learning about businesses, really that um, that experience impacted me as an investor because instead of looking at the stock market as a chance to speculate, um, I really viewed my ownership in these shares. I mean, I was a business owner, so I was constantly evaluating the businesses and their profitability, their prospects for growth going forward. How are they going to fund the growth? Um, so it just changed my perspective. And then as a young adult in my early 20s, um, I was working at a hedge fund shop in Atlanta, Georgia, and received notification that my great uncle was going to fund a hedge fund for me with $30 million in seed capital. It came as a total surprise and was quite shocking, but I was able to work with him for about eight years before he passed and learn as much as I could about him, his strategies, and in particular, I spent a lot of time focused on um, his trades that were more profitable in his career. And my husband and I actually wrote a book called Investing the Templeton Way, which profiles those trades. We wanted to go back and place um, the decisions in historical context so that people understood during moments of maximum pessimism, as he said, it's very hard to make these decisions and to be a contrarian and go against the herd. Um, so I wanted people to first understand all the background behind the trades that he made. And also we believe at our firm that to distinguish your investment returns, you really need to focus on your behavior in a bear market. It's pretty easy for everyone to do well in a bull market. Um, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. But if you want to distinguish your return pattern over the long term, you should really focus on the opportunities you're given in a bear market. So that's what we were hoping to do with writing that book. My husband and I run a registered investment advisory firm. We have a research report called the Maximum Pessimism Report, which is avail avail available for free if anybody wants to read it. Oh man, we have we have so much to unpack there, and we I, I, don't worry. I, we I, anybody listening? I have questions for literally everything that Lauren just said. But as a as a quick follow up, you know, when we were when we were doing the panel, you know, you, you mentioned that uh, both your father and great uncle were 
lighthouses in your life, you know, what would you say was the biggest difference in their investing strategy or philosophy? Did, was there a difference or are they more or less the same? Oh, and my father and, yep. and Sir John? Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, huge. So um, I would say their philosophy is the same, mm -hmm. but the way they implement the philosophy, philosophy is very different. So Interesting. You know, John Templeton was a stock picker. So he liked to analyze companies. You know, of course, this was before the days of Bloomberg and Microsoft Excel. So when you went to his office, you would see the big binders, the value line binders for anybody who remembers yep. them. And so he would get the supplements, add them to the binder. And that's what he would read. He would be reading all those pages and all the companies in the value line reports. Um, and ranking companies um, based on their valuation. And I mean, he read a lot of research, but he also looked at value line. Um, it's so different these days when you can download data on thousands of companies with one click into an Excel spreadsheet and, and, and sort that data. I mean, I, I remember very clearly one time visiting him in the Bahamas. I used to go down um, like every month and it was one of our meetings and he said well now i want you to go back to atlanta and take these securities and rank them using you know the peg ratio and a five-year growth rate if you can find it and i said well i'll just do it right now and you know i did it and he was like what whoa <laughs> <laughs> and i'm like wow we can do that now it's amazing um so he was really a pioneer in the field because he had to search pretty far for his research. But going back to your original question, my dad, um, he believed in the same philosophy, but didn't feel that he had the skill set to analyze um, a specific company. Uh, I don't know if he didn't have the skill or he just didn't have the time. So he right, focused yep. on mutual funds. Um, so what he would do is find a good mutual fund with a, with a good track record and in a, in a market, you know, event where the market fell, he would add to that mutual fund. Um, and he did quite well. I mean, mutual funds are hard products, right? They're terrible products to manage because um, people are always giving you money at the wrong time and taking it away at the wrong time. So if you're a value mutual fund manager, the market falls and people are redeeming um, that's the exact time you need capital to take advantage of opportunities. So it's very challenging, but also from a tax perspective, they're not the, um, the best vehicles always to invest in. So I do think my father's strategy has evolved over the years. Um, but yeah, there, there are lots of different ways to skin a cat. And the value lens applies to funds. It applies to stocks. There are lots of different ways you can take advantage of human behavior when it comes to investing in financial markets. Absolutely. You know, the, the main reason I even, I wanted to ask that question is because, you know, I, I, I figured, of course you had the influence from Sir John, you know, and, and in more ways than one. Um, but, but also you speak quite eloquently about the, you know, the influence your father had on your investing experience and philosophy and strategy as well. So it's, it's really interesting to see how, what you took from John and your father and how you've been able to evolve it to where you're at today, which we're going to get into in detail in a little bit. Um, 
you already went into detail a little bit, but you know, we'll get more detail later. But uh, you know, what, one question I also had, and you, you said a couple experiences now, but I mean, what, what were some experiences, and I'm, I'm sure there's countless, uh, that you draw upon uh, that really reflect your investing philosophy when you think about your relationships with both your father and, and, and Sir John? Well, really, the focus is um, just on value and on finding a bargain. Um, you know, we are very disciplined investors when it comes to deploying capital. And we have an investment discipline that we like to adhere to, a philosophy here in this um, here in this office. And I think that's very important because if you're not disciplined, I think you it can be very easy to be led astray and by your own emotions. So I do like having a framework. It um, you know it it might be mine, it might be somebody else's. There are all sorts of different strategies that that might work, but you have to choose what what is really best suited for your personality and have some discipline around your decision making process but also flexibility so that's i know those are kind of opposite discipline but flexible um uncle john was extremely flexible so we watched him over time really change the different valuation metrics he looked at um sometimes it was the pe ratio sometimes it Sometimes it was the peg ratio, um, you know, in his famous trade, um, coming, investing in 104 stocks on the eve of World War II. I mean, he was really a distressed investor. 37 of those companies were in bankruptcy at the time. So we've seen him use a variety of metrics. Um, here at this company, we, we do all the traditional value metrics we screen and we really drill into the bottom decile of the market but if you look at what has been most highly um, rewarded over the past decade or so it's free cash flow yield um, so we we have been able to really adjust the emphasis on which metrics we're looking at for which and for a certain industry or certain stock so we have a framework that we're we're very disciplined investors, but we also have some flexibility within that framework um, to adjust the way we analyze companies. Um, and I think that's all super important. I couldn't agree more. I, so I, I guess I guess really what we're getting at here is, I mean, what, what, what experience would you say kind of led you to, okay, this is going to be our main focus, or I guess maybe it was an investing experience or something that you studied from one of the trades that either your father or Sir John did. I mean, was there an experience that you're like, okay, I'm going to try this path, see where it takes us. And now we're going to take it here. I mean, not really. I, the, the answer is I grew up in the Templeton family. Uh, we are value investors. It is right. a, um, it is not just an investment discipline it's pervasive across ev yeah. everything in life <laughs> so yes. i always say um everybody loves to hear the the stories of my childhood with my my father but i mean he really did and and it's not a joke i don't say it for attention he actually told me bedtime stories about the magic of compounding how the magic ingredient is time and as a young person, how powerful that is. You don't have to have great returns if you just start when you're young and start investing young. The other thing he talked about all the time, which you know, I always kid, I'm like, this is child abuse, dad. Um, 
<laughs> everything was about the opportunity cost of decisions. So, um, you know, I used to tell a story about how we had the ugliest Christmas tree in town because we would always go out to my aunt's piece of property and chop down a cedar tree. And it was always lopsided and, and ugly and haul it home. And, you know, we would put it in the living room and decorate it. And my friends all had these, you know, really perfect Fraser firs and these gorgeous trees. And so I would beg, beg for a pretty Christmas tree. And I remember one day my dad loaded me up in his pickup truck and we headed down to the Christmas tree lot instead of my Aunt Grace's property. And he said, okay, go pick out whatever tree you want on the lot. And I did, and I came back and he said, well, how much is it? And at the time they were less expensive. I think it was $20. And he said, well, you know, I, I'd be willing to buy this tree for you now for $20, or we could put the $20 in the Templeton growth fund that's compounding at, you know, more than 14.5%. And, you know, I've shown you how to do these calculations. So you tell me what this would be worth by the time you turn 65. And I would have to do that over and over again, whether it was a Christmas tree or, I mean, literally anything. Um, so that is a Templeton quality, I would say. Sir John was the same way, you know, during the Asian financial crisis. He had um, made a lot of money off of Kia Motors, is a stock that he, he bought. Um, he had uh, several different uh, strategies taking care of that, um, taking advantage of the Asian financial crisis. One, one of which is a great story about him investing in the Matthews funds, Paul Matthews fund. And it had been the worst performing fund on record the year before, because this was during the years of the high flying tech funds. And it literally had the worst record. And Paul Matthews says, he, he said that things were really depressed, depressing in his office, like they had even bought a ping pong table or something, because they were so depressed, they were just standing around and playing ping pong. And, you know, they, they had launched the fund at the wrong time, it was a terrible track record. And they got a fax from Sir John Templeton saying he's going to put in um, a lot of money into the fund. And the next year it was, I think, that the number one perform, performing mutual fund on record. So um, that was one way he took advantage of the Asian financial crisis. But the other way is he bought Kia Motors. And he, I forget, I think my book may say how much money approximately he made on that stock. I don't remember at this point because I've slapped since I wrote the book. But um he always drove, you know, a, a clunker car down in, in the Bahamas. And um, his assistant would say that she was embarrassed by him because he lives in this, lived in this prestigious uh, community in the Bahamas. And he would drive this, you know, yucky car. And um, so she, she suggested to him that he go down to the Kia dealership on the island to buy a vehicle. And he came back and, of course, he was a multi-billionaire when this happened. And she said, you know, Sir John, where's your car? And he said, well, they're, they're too expensive for me. <laughs> so I do think this is a Templeton <laughs> quality, whether it's a car or a piece of furniture, a home or a stock. Um, you know, that is a, a philosophy that's perva pervasive in my family to look for value everywhere. 
Um, so I think you either have that in your blood or, or you don't. I, I, I swear I, I've been as when I start since I started the podcast and learning a lot more about value investing and reading a few books, it's it's one of the simplest concepts and yet most difficult to implement. You know, especially yes. you know, when when you're trying to evaluate how do you really how I mean it's easy it's more or less I don't want to say it's easy it's nothing's easy to when it comes to evaluating evaluating stocks and putting evaluation on something but then when you take just goods and services and products it's putting a value to it it's just that that concept itself is just I mean you can take it any which direction you want and you know some sometimes you think you might be going down the right path and sometimes you're you know you might be overvaluing something you know so it's 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 simple in concept so so and and i'm 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 jealous quite frankly i'm a little jealous you know since you were a little girl you you were you were it's in your blood you know to to really have this concept i think so but i think most people can understand the concept of value investing and improve their results by um focusing on their behavior and i do think that's something you can learn over time which is not only, um, I mean, compounding is magic. The magic ingredient is time. You should start early. But, um, you know, you can also improve your results by focusing on your behavior and learning about your behavioral biases. And the way to do that really is to put capital at risk during these scary moments and reap the rewards and do that over and over again. And then you'll eventually get to a place where I am in my life, whereas I, I love a financial panic. Um, they're exciting for me. I started to get really antsy when the market's just going up and, um, and there's no volatility there because it's harder for us to locate opportunities. But there's usually a good panic out there somewhere and we've played the swine flu crisis and I think we've researched like crisis um, and dog food and all sorts of different things. Um, but I do think it's some, it's a skill that investors can hone themselves. It just yep. is a painful way to do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, I, I did an interview very recently with a gentleman named Ben Clareman and we, we talked, uh, we, we talked basically the whole time about this idea of contrarian investing and how basically contrarianism, and value investing might as well be synonyms because it's kind of yeah. how it's kind of how you have to think when you when you're trying to find some value, you know. So, mm-hmm. and I think you actually recently did. I think it was either a talk or an interview talking about crisis investing, and I I think it had to do with you know kind of the March 16th timeframe even of this year. I mean, yeah. what what are some of the for those who you know it, it seems like each new crisis and each new um, downturn is a whole new, like, whoa, this has never happened before. And I mean, yeah. with the pandemic, I mean, this hasn't happened since 1918. So there's a generations of people that never experienced something like this, but mm-hmm. you know, whether it's dot com bubble or, you know, COVID-19 pandemic, um, the G the GFC, I mean, geez, can you, all the things that have happened in the last 20 years in the market, it's, it's kind of incredible. Um, yeah. you know, what, what are, from a behavioral investing standpoint, because you actually taught a course on this for two years at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. What, what are some of the things that as an investor, 
you need to really keep in mind to kind of either keep your cool to then take advantage of the opportunities mm-hmm. or if all right, let's, that's a good question. How do you keep your cool to take advantage of these opportunities? Mm-hmm. Well, some of that's just experience, right? So when I was young, I would get very upset and, um, you know, would go home and go to bed and it would be very upsetting to me anytime there was a market event, but you learn to take advantage of them and reaping the rewards makes you look forward to them. But even the most seasoned investors, um, really sometimes get nervous. I was pretty rock solid during the great financial crisis. I always say I was pregnant at the time and I just thought, well, you know, who knows what's going to happen here, but I'm about to have a baby. And um, that's what I'm focused on. Um, So that was an easy one for me to manage. COVID-19 was nerve wracking for me personally. I'm a hypochondriac and I was actually during the early days of the pandemic. And so I was convinced that everybody in my house had COVID-19 and was worried about that. Um, But we were taking taking advantage of it here in the office. So we did a lot of trading during March and April, April to restructure the portfolios and take advantage of opportunities. We actually became more concentrated. Um, So the opportunities came and went pretty quickly in late March, early April, the really good opportunities. And I always tell people to prepare yourself for these opportunities. You should really maintain a wish list of securities in your desk drawer. These are companies that you've read about, that you've done some research on, that you would like to own, but valuations um, are not going to allow you to own them at that particular point. We have some kind of dream companies that we've been following for years that we've said, you know, gosh, I so want to own that business. Um, but it, you know, doesn't fit into our discipline. And, and we, we adhere to this discipline. So we keep this list, and it is a real list in our desk drawer. And Uncle John did the same thing. But so during moments of market panic, um, when even the most seasoned investors are worried about um, their performance, um, the loss of capital, you can really shift your mental focus by pulling that list out of the desk drawer and, and then start focusing on the opportunities. And I say this in almost every interview I give, it is um, a palpable shift in energy. and it's just so powerful when you quit focusing and thinking about the money that has been lost and how scary it is and all the unknowns that we all worry about during those panicky moments and instead focus on the opportunities and it it makes all the difference in the world and gives you the conviction to put on trades um that maybe you wouldn't without that list, right? So these are companies you've researched in advance. Yeah, I love that advice. You know, we're, because I'm I'm assuming you you make this list regardless of price. You just don't even care. You're like, I just want to find the best businesses. I'm going to make a list of them. And if there's an opportunity, go for it there. So I have to, I'm, I'm, you know, I do a lot of interviews with, you know, small micro nano cap investors on here. It's micro cap podcast, you know, and a lot of these investors, you know, when they love a business, they don't care. It, they just love the business. And yes, of course, they mm-hmm. want to get in at the right price and all that. But at the end of the day, if they're 
if it's, you know, not a huge spread or they're like, you know, I just love this business. Even if it might be valued a little bit higher than what I'd like it, I'm going to mm -hmm. go and buy it, you know? So mm -hmm. what do you say to the investor that, you know, and now we're just talking just in general, not talking about crisis investing, but just in general, you know, especially for those investors that have that three to five year time, time frame, you know, what, what do you say to those investors where, you know, they, they just love that business. They want to get in at any price because they just see, you know, that there's, there's great kegger in that three to five year range. You know, do, do you still invest like that as well? Or are you really just sticking to that discipline of like, well, I love this business, but mm, at that price though. Yeah, we, we focus, we, we adhere to a discipline. Um, so, you know, no matter how much we love the business, we won't buy it unless it's priced right. And I always say that's really saving me from myself because Sir John, um, he was pretty careful with the way he calculated things, but he spent a lot of time thinking about it. And he was known as the world's greatest stock picker. And he said that he was right about 60% of the time, which meant he was wrong 40% of the time. And he was one of the world's greatest stock pickers. So. I figure that I am right, you know, much lower than 60%. And so it's, it's very important for me to adhere to a discipline. So I'm always, um, I'm not letting my emotions drive the process. Um, I would be worried if you didn't um, have some discipline around your investing framework that you would fall in love with a security Right, it's really easy to listen to management and and forecast out all of this stuff and and be a little too optimistic about it and not have any um, guardrails up or um, margin of safety, which is a term we use a lot in value investing, um, and I think it's pretty important. So we actually look for about 50% margin of safety, which is huge. Uh, a lot of value investors are in that 30% range. I'm less confident than the average value investor. Uh, that could be because I'm a female. They say uh, women have higher uh, investment returns simply because we don't trade as much and have less of the transaction costs that weigh down our returns. Um, but yeah, I would stick to a framework. So I have to ask, you know, how would you say your investment criteria, the Templeton way, you know, how was how that discipline and that criteria when you're evaluating potential investment, how has that changed over the years? Have you, have you evolved it over, you know, to adjust to, I guess you say the 21st or what are we in the 22nd century? How does that, I, I guess 21st century, right? I think yeah. or 22nd. <laughs> well, it's constantly evolving, right? So it depends on what's going on on the market. Um, like I made some notes to really, um, to think through how Uncle John's investment discipline changed. So when he started his career, he was investing in the 1950s and 60s, and he was focused on Japan, right? So none of the rest of the world was focused on Japan, but he was focused on Japan. And what he was really doing, and those investments were driven by accounting anomalies. So he was adjusting balance sheets, and he was calculating a sum of parts. And then in the US bear market in the early 1980s, he focused on valuing firms on replacement value. 
And again, I said earlier in the podcast, um, on the eve of World War II, he was more of a distressed investor. So he went and bought 104 companies trading on U.S. stock exchanges that were trading for less than a dollar. 37 were in bankruptcy. He did it with $10,000 worth of borrowed money. And he did quite well um, and is very well known for that trade. And then in the tech boom, I watched him um, short short uh, tech stocks. So in that um, in that market, what he had done is he was focused on um, he was focused on IPO lockups. So he knew that even the insiders of these tech firms would know that their companies were overvalued. And so he would look up when the IPO lockup expiration was, and he would short the company about a week before IPO lockup expiration and cover about a week later because he correctly assumed that the insiders would rush to sell the shares at these lofty valuations. And that worked really well. And then I watched him take a lot of um, that, the money that he made from the shorting tech stocks and deploy it into treasury strips using um, borrowed yen. So that was a trade that he made. And he was so flexible. We have followed the same path. So there have been times where our investment portfolio really follows more of the classic Graham and Dodd approach. Um, and there are times such as now where we're focused more on free cash flow yield. Um, during the market sell-off in March and April, we had the opportunity to really change our portfolio and buy stocks that value investors typically don't get to buy. Um, so, you know, we deployed capital into Amazon in late March and early April, which is not a typical stock for a value investor, but it touched um, lows that we had not seen since the great financial crisis. Um, and it was a great entry point into Amazon. So our strategy does change a little bit and will continue to change. There will be um, times in the future where we focus on different metrics, depending on what's going on in the market. So my next question for you, and as a value investor, there's so much qualitative due diligence that value investors do, you know, uh, you do. Um, and, you know, we're, you, you actually have a unique position where you also sit on uh, some public company boards. So you get that upfront experience where you're not just evaluating how current management is doing, but potentially even looking at new management to bring in and, and to really understand some of the good and the bad traits that go into some of the more uh, better investments that you're looking for. So what, what are some of those good and bad traits that you look for when you're evaluating management? When you're talking about the qualitative side of investing and you're evaluating management, I think you really want to be focused on management teams that can answer the question, you know, what are your long-term strategies for creating shareholder value? Um, and not, you. I'm always um, worried about management teams that are focused on the next quarter, right? Because there, it's very easy to manipulate earnings and um, from a research perspective, you have to have your eyes open and know all the accounting gimmicks and tricks that companies can play to manipulate earnings to get from one quarter to the next. And I would say that would be a very low quality company and management team that relies on those. 
So we like to see management that is focused on the long term and value creation for shareholders over the long term and less myopic and focused on next quarter. Um, so that's always really insightful. Sometimes you, when you speak to management and you talk about the long term and they're like, uh, you know, that's, that's a pretty good sign that, well, that may not, um, you know, they not, may not be long-term focused enough for us. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I can't believe I've never asked this question before, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I'm assuming you had experience with management teams, both large, mid, small, micro, you know, across the board in terms of market caps. Does good or bad management, you know, what, what's, does it change across the board? Or when you're looking at a, a good micro cap manager, is, are they doing more or less the same things as a good, you know, mid large cap manager? Yeah, I think so. I think management is management. Um, you know, it's all about creating value for shareholders and how um, smart they are at um, capital um, allocation in their business. Yep. So that doesn't matter, you know, if you're micro cap, if you're large cap, it's all about um, returns to shareholders, I feel like. So it's the same. I don't think it matters whether it's micro cap or large cap. For sure. I, I, I knew, I, I agree a thousand percent. I had a feeling that was the answer, but you know, I, I mm -hmm. thought I'd ask, why not? Um, so, you know, one of the, one of the ways that we actually met was, uh, was through Maya Peterson and, and her, her incredible book, uh, Lighthouse, uh, uh, Women Leading the Way in Finance. I invite everybody to go get your own copy. Uh, you're featured in there and that's how you came onto the panel uh, that we did back in August. And, and in there, um, she highlights your passion for financial literacy and teaching value investing, which we, we discussed earlier. You taught a behavioral finance class at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. Um, so here's a two part question for you. You know, really what, what does behavioral finance mean to you? And then the second part is how can we continue to get the message out there about the importance of financial literacy? Okay, so behavioral fin finance to me just means human nature, right? So the psychology behind your decision making when it comes to financial decisions, that is what I think of when we talk about behavioral finance. So people have all sorts of biases as human beings. Um, and a lot of those have been quite helpful as we have evolved. You know, when you think about a caveman sitting in a cave, when his, um, when the guy gets next to you gets up and starts running, you might maybe should run too, right? That might be helpful. There might be a bear there or something like that. Probably, yeah. Yes, but in fact, unless you're unless you're a contrarian, you know, and you're like, oh, I can, that bear's not yeah. that big. I, I can. They, Nope. But from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, these things have developed our, um, the way we process information has developed to keep us alive. Sure. And um, that is not very helpful when it comes to navigating financial markets. So I love the study of behavioral finance. I think it's uh, endlessly fascinating. I love to read James Montier's work on that. He's got some great books describing all the biases and how the human brain works, how we process information. You know, you have different areas of your brain and really um, the human brain relies on this little um, piece right at the front of your um, brain called the amygdala 
to process a ton of information very quickly and to process that much information um, so fast. I mean, information you're not even aware of. I think we as humans are conscious of about 40 pieces of information per second. Um, but I forget how many bits of information the human brain actually processes, but it's millions, okay? And so when you're talking about taking in that much information, your brain has developed all these mental shortcuts to help you uh, make decisions and basically stay alive. And these are these shortcuts are what really will get you in a lot of trouble when it comes to financial decision making. So um, that's that's what I think of when I think of behavioral finance. I mean, really, I think reading a book on behavioral finance um, improves everyone's returns because you start to notice that you, you have some of this behavior. Mm -hmm. And um, it may be hard to override that, but you're at least conscious of it. So I find myself all the time going, oh no, you know, that's, I'm anchored or, you know, I'm using mental accounting and it, it makes you aware and it can improve your investment returns. I don't remember your last question. <laughs> <laughs> the, well, the second part was um, <laughs> talking about, uh, you know, how we can continue to get the message out there about the importance uh, of financial literacy. You know, I don't know. I love, I love the idea of all young people being financial literate. Um, it is hugely important, right? That's a gift my dad gave me that, wow. I mean, what a gift to give your child and really a lot is. of children never get that. So, um, you know, I don't know, but if somebody has any great ways of um, increasing financial literacy in youth, please reach out to me because I am very passionate about it. I think every child should learn, learn about it. Um, you know, my dad always told me, you're gonna deal with money your entire life. You know, you can't opt out of the money game. You have to know how to play it, whether you're a doctor or a school teacher or you invest in the markets. So these are important concepts to learn about compound interest, to learn the positive compound interest, but also negative compound interest. So what happens when you have credit card debt? So these are little decisions you can make early on in your life when you're young and you don't know better that can have a huge positive impact or a huge negative impact on your life. And I feel like as um, a member of the financial community, we have this responsibility to educate young people and give everybody the opportunity to start out on solid ground with their financial decisions. Well, Hey, you know, let's go on 20 minutes. Let's spitball right now because I think, I mean, the number one thing, because I think about this concept a lot too, you know, especially, I mean, one of the reasons I, re I started this podcast is that I wanted to become a better investor and uh, I, I wanted to interview people way above my weight class. I still continue to do because, uh, you know, that's just, I do. And, 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 the the main thing I think about a lot when it comes to financial literacy is, you know, you think about, all right, do we create games for kids to talk about, you know, finance concepts and this and that, you know, but just hearing your story and, and hearing the effect it had on you, you know, it's almost, it's a different type of network effect that you have to really think about is, well, what if there was just a, a, a fun, easy way to teach the older generations about money, get them passionate about it a little bit more so that then they could 
or, or just teaching them how to get passionate about it to then teach their children about it. You know, I, I don't know, because whenever I think about, you know, high school courses or middle school or even elementary school, you know, in theory, we like, Oh, great. We need that. This is great. We want it, you know, in the classroom to be teaching about money and just understanding the stock market and compounding interest and all these important concepts. But at the same time, you're like, you know, all they're thinking about is recess, you know, and the, and lunch. So, and and they're just trying to figure out math right now and, and, and history. You know, yeah. now you're throwing it, now you're throwing that and not to say they don't have the capacity, but at the same time, it's, you know, I, I think really where it could have the most effect is that is in the home. I mean, you're a prime well, example. Sure. It is, <laughs> you know, the best way to talk to young people is in the home and it is with the parents. But unfortunately, a huge percentage of our children don't have that opportunity because their parents aren't educated or maybe they're working two jobs and just don't have the time to do it or they've picked up bad financial habits in their life and they're going to pass them on to their own children so there has to be some method outside of the home to give all kids uh, an education in finance and you don't have to teach them about investing in the stock market but i mean the concept of compound interest and saving and being responsible stewards of capital is so important. And so I do think there's a place for that in education, maybe not K through five education, but certainly in middle school and high school. I mean, because what these kids are going to roll out of high school and then have to pay for college and they're going to go take out a student loan. Half of them don't even know what they're signing up for. So, you know, we should make an effort, I feel like, as society to educate young people about financial terminology, make sure they're financially literate so that they can navigate these waters um, post high school. But for sure, if you're a parent sitting at home, it is easy to do in the house without it being overwhelming. I mean, I, my kids get a healthy dose of it. And I really think if you talk to them, they wouldn't even they don't even notice that I'm, I'm doing it. It's kind of like I'm putting peas in their ice cream. I just happen to pickle in some financial language and, you know, like my, my um, oldest, I'll, I'll tell you this and you can cut it off if I'm going over, but um, no, my going. oldest um, during the, the crisis. So she started making these lanyards um, that you could put a mask on, right? So it would hold your mask on. It's like a necklace and it holds your mask on. And she asked me to buy some beads for her. So I did. I went on Amazon. We discussed how much the beads cost. And then she and her friend went to sell these lanyards. So we had, you know, a talk about, you know, cost of goods, the margins. Um, we talked about awesome. taxes and, you know, how hard it was to make the money and, and be able to charge the right price to really cover the true cost of manufacturing this lanyard. And um, what she was going to do with her savings, did she want to spend it, it was so hard to make, or should she let it grow? Um, and then the other thing I'm considering doing, which I haven't done right now, is um, just setting up a Venmo account for her and linking it to a bank account so that as she does chores around the house, I can quickly send her money because what happens at our house is I'll say, oh yeah, I'll pay you $5 to do that and then I forget to do it. And so <laughs> the incentive is gone. 
Um, but I think, you know, rewarding your children for hard work and making them learn what hard work is, is important as well. I agree. Look, Lauren, whenever you're ready to, to start a, a YouTube channel and then an Instagram presence, I mean, I think there's a real opportunity of just explaining, you know, what you've done and how you've taught your children and then also the experiences you had as a child. I mean, look, I'll be a Well, I have, th I have thought about that, and I don't have time, right? So I know. I, I was going to say, you're incredibly busy, but the minute I've you actually, do decide to do that. Well, I thought about how Maya and I should probably team up to do that, right? Because she is an amazing example of a young person who is um, really understands all of that, and she might be able to get the message um across to young people a little bit more effectively than i could she is such a rock star i feel like for a young person her age and i do have um i have a folder full of articles that my dad has given me over the years it's about this thick and it's called the dad file <laughs> i've got it in my <laughs> office he still sends stuff to me and i put it oh that's cool i'll put it in the dad file so over the years, um, when young young people really around the world, um, they have written me about investing, I will often copy or scan the dad file and send it to them, to them. But it's just got so many different articles that young people can read. And it's an easy way to understand investing and money um, that I've just compiled these my entire life. Um, but he's, he's good at uh, doing that for me. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you right now, like I, I genuinely would be a consumer of that because as much experience as I've had in the stock market and, and, you know, investing and talking with, you know, incredibly brilliant people like yourself, you know, it, that's totally different than then looking your child in the eye and saying, okay, money, <laughs> uh, markets, uh, yeah. Dead. You know, like I, I could go off forever, you know, so there's, yeah. there's an art to it. So um, whenever you're ready to do that, I will um, one, be the first uh, a customer of that. So. Okay. Uh, well, that sounds good. <laughs> okay, good. So, um, so we're at that point in the interview where uh, these are my, my favorite questions to ask. And so, you know, what, what, what would you say is an investing experience that, that impacted your career the most? impacted my career. Um, I've had lots of investment experience and I've made a ton of mistakes um, that impacted my career the most. Really, you know, just learning to buy things at the bottom of the market um, in a variety of financial crises and uh, events in the market and benefiting from that. That every time you do that, it just solidifies that in your brain that this is how you make money and you get it gets easier and easier all right so what was the first that. time that what was the first time that happened so that and that full you were like oh yeah this i'm gonna do this from now on this is the way this is the way i mean i don't even remember the first time because i've been investing for so long it would have been when i was seven or eight years old <laughs> i mean i i very vividly remember the 87 stock market crash Mm -hmm. So I would have been 11 years old. Um, I remember being, um, well, th this, this, I'll tell you a little bit more about my family. So my dad in the 80s, he decided to sell his business. 
Um, he and my mom went and studied investing full time. They went back and my mom got her degree in accounting. They both um, set for the CFA examination. My mom um, is not an accountant because she doesn't have the work experience. She was always she was already retired. Um, and you have to have a number of years of work experience. Um, but she made one of the top grades in the whole nation on the wow. CPA exam. So they did that after they sold their businesses. So they were studying investing full time. And there is a, a city about an hour from our small town called Huntsville, Alabama. And there was a brokerage firm there, Dean Witter Reynolds. And my dad went in and said, I want to work with you for two years. I want to get every certification that you'll let me get just to learn about this industry. And, and then I'm gone. Well, he was there during the 1987 stock market crash. Wow. So mom and dad, they'd already sold their businesses. They had everything invested in the stock market. And dad was working at a stock brokerage firm and 87 hit. So I remember being in the den of my parents' house and my dad coming home from work and him asking my mother to step outside of the den and, and close the door to the den. And he told her that they had lost half of everything they'd worked for. And I don't remember my mom having a bad reaction. They instead viewed it as an opportunity. My dad said he was the only buy order that went in in the whole firm that day. That there were uh, brokers that really focused on options that got up and left the office that day and never returned. Like nobody saw them again. Wow. They just like left. Um, so that although it wasn't me investing directly, like I remember that moment and it not being a scary or a sad moment at our home. Instead, um, my dad was focused on the opportunity and I don't know the one stock he bought that day or whatever it was he bought. I don't know if it was a fund or a stock, but he said he had the only buy order. Also wow. in 87, um, we, my husband and I have written various things. He's actually written three books and in one of them, we went around and interviewed people all over, um, the world that had worked with uncle John. And in the interviews, we talked to, um, his now not so young analysts, but the analysts that were working with him on, on the day of the stock market crash in 87. And they said the market was tumbling and he always exercised every day. He would go for a walk in the surf for an hour at Life or Key. Um, he was very specific about it. He even had his shirts hemmed so that the water wouldn't hit them and he could cover up without getting a sunburn. But so it was time for his lunch and walk and he got up and he left the office and they were like, where, what is he doing? Like this is the stock market is falling. So he came back in from his walk and um, they said they ran up to him and they were surrounding him and they were like, oh, Sir John, Sir John, you know, the, the stock market's crashed. It's just crashing. And he said, boys, sit down. And he said, I've got good news and bad news. The bad news is we're in a bear market. The good news is it's almost over. Please have, please have your stock recommendations on my desk this afternoon for us to place buy orders. And then we've also interviewed the brokers that took those orders that day. 
And um, he also was famous for saying on that day, this is going to make our returns for years to come. And he was correct. So um, although I, would, I, had, I wasn't there, I didn't have that experience. I did have the experience of my dad on the crash of 87, remembering it vividly and seeing it as an opportunity instead of focused on the fact that our, I mean, I'm sure it must have been a lot of pressure. They had just sold their businesses and he lost half of everything. You know, that's not oh. something you want to tell your wife. <laughs> I, I'm already thinking of the title for this episode and it's going to be the Templeton way, the ultimate contrarian. I think that, <laughs> I, I think that is, that is just a perfect, perfect way. Uh, well, there is a great documentary called contrarian. Um, I think you can look it up online, but it is about John Templeton. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's definitely worth watching. Um, it's Definitely a it's really good documentary. Yeah. Very cool. So we're rounding the bend here. Uh, my, my second to last question, the last question is an easy one. My, well, they're all, I don't think I threw any curveballs today. I, I don't yeah. usually, my curveball is not very good anymore. Uh, <laughs> but, but you know, what, what advice do you have for, for new investors out there looking at investing in the stock market? Mm-hmm. Um, my advice would be to open a brokerage account at a discount brokerage firm and just start investing. Um, I think that people spend an awful lot of time reading and preparing, and I don't want to take anything away from that. I mean, it's important to do that. But people get really overwhelmed very quickly when it comes to money and finance, and they just don't ever do it. They sit and study, or they're too too intimidated by it. So they never do it. And then they, you know, rely on experts. And I mean, I'm an expert, I'm grateful for my customers. And we're always looking out for our customers best interests. But you know, we all know that not everybody's like that that works in the financial markets. So you need to know what you're doing yourself. And the only way to really learn is to put some of your money at risk and, and just go for it. Now I'm not I'm not recommending that you take your whole life savings and open a brokerage account and start trading. But, you know, buy a stock. Uh, Buy a stock and start following. Buy one share of a company that you, you know, you think you like and start reading about it. Because when you have the money actually at risk and invested in it, then you'll really start to read and follow the company news and you'll learn as you go. I think that people get way too intimidated when it comes to investing, start too late in, in life, and they lose the number one advantage that you have as an investor, which is time. That is the, the thing you have the most control over. So the earlier you start, the better. Well, that's a, I think that's a great way to end it right there. So Lauren, uh, where, where can my audience go and find more information about you and Templeton and Phillips Capital Management? Yeah, well, we have a website. It's not the best. <laughs> it's not our focus, but uh, templetonandphillips.com. I'm active on Twitter at LC Templeton. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. So feel free to reach out. And um, our maximum pessimism report is, um, is, periodically produced, <laughs> I'll say. I, lo- yeah. I love that word. Yeah. <laughs> in, in the media business, periodically is the best. Yeah, Peri- yeah. 
Yeah, we used to be monthly. Now we're periodically. <laughs> um, it is really hard to come up with something new to say every month. Um, so, but when we do put out a report, it's usually full of tons of good, um, good, useful information, and it is free. Very good. Well, Lauren, th this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Stay safe. Good luck, and uh, hey, I look forward you. to chatting with you again soon. Yes. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.